God's been using this church to transform people into passionate followers of Jesus Christ for a hundred years. And it's just mind-boggling to me to think about that. Um, and as, we, as you work through Hebrews 11, and as, as you see all these heroes of the faith, um, it climaxes with Hebrews chapter 12, where the writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off the sin that so easily entangles and let us throw everything off and let us run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us. And I want us to think about that cloud of witnesses. The writer is painting a picture of the people who've gone on before us and they are there with Jesus in heaven and they are in this cloud of witnesses and this cloud of witnesses is cheering us on as we run this race of life. And over the next year, you're going to hear story of witnesses, people who are in that cloud now, and they're cheering us on. And their example of faithfulness is an example of faithfulness for us, and is a reminder that with God, we can do this. As we keep our eyes on Jesus, we can do this. In Birmingham, Alabama, on the campus of Sanford University is Beeson Divinity School. And it's where, it's where I, I got my master's degree, and uh, it's a special place for us. Lauren also holds an undergraduate degree from Samford. And uh, you may not know much about Samford, but uh, in 2013, Samford was one of three Razorback wins that year. So, um, so that is, uh, that, you're very welcome for that. Um, but, but Lauren also graduated from Samford. And uh, it's a special place for us. It only took me five and a half years uh, to complete a three-year master's degree uh, there at Beeson Divinity School. But I finished, and, and that's what counts. And I want you to know about, about my time there as a, as a young man trying to work full-time as a pastor, trying to complete a master's degree. Uh, there were times I wanted to just give up. There were times I just, I, 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 just, I mean, I just wanted to give up. I was a new husband. Uh, I was a full-time youth pastor. Um, I was living away from my parents for the first time. Uh, literally had zero dollars in the bank account. Um, all, of those, all of those factors made it a very challenging time. And there were times I just I wanted to give up. Like, if there's one thing I can give up here, I need to give this school gig up. I need to stop trying to get this degree. I need to stop working on this. And, and about the time I would want to give up, I would find myself in the chapel, and there's a beautiful chapel there. It's the, the Hodges Chapel there on the campus of Sanford. And there's a rotunda. And as you look up at the rotunda, this is what you see. Uh, it is an artist's rendering of the great cloud of witnesses. And you see Jesus there at the bottom. And then the artist has put all of these faces there um, uh, behind Jesus, imagining the, this cloud of witnesses. Now, around the banister of the rotunda are these great heroes from, from, church faith, from the church faith. Uh, about 2 o'clock is John Wesley. And, and so um, uh, you know, there, there, was, there was our, our theological ancestor there in, in, the, in the great cloud of witnesses. But about the time I would want to give up, about the time I would want to pack it in, I would find myself in the chapel praying, asking myself, should I give up? Should I try to do this some other time? And I would look up and I would see this cloud of witnesses. I would see this image that reminded me of people that had gone on before, and they had lived lives of faithfulness, and God had helped and sustained them, 
and God was going to help and sustain me. And I know in this room today, there are people going through incredible things. We've experienced loss at such a deep and a visceral level. We're facing challenges with our jobs. We are facing illnesses. We are facing treatment plans and things that we don't really want to have to go through, but the doctor says we have to go through it. And so we are facing all kinds of things. And what I want to remind you today, and what the writer of Hebrews wants you to see, is there's a great cloud of witnesses. There's people that have gone on before you, and God proved himself to be faithful in their life, and he wants to prove himself faithful in your life as well. And so as we tell these stories of our church over the next few years, you're going to be introduced to faithful lives, faithful saints. There's plenty of faithful saints that we read about in Scripture, but we can tell the stories of faithful saints here at our church as well. And as we tell these stories, we're not telling them because they were perfect people. No, in fact, our, our historian can, can tell you they were, they were far from perfect. There are all kinds of stories of people who did significant things in the life of our church, but it wasn't because they were perfect or because they had it all together. It was because they were surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. And because they were surrendered to the lordship of Jesus, God worked through their flaws to accomplish his goodwill and his purpose. And, 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 and that's really been the theme over the last few weeks as we've been looking at not the hall of fame, but the hall of flaw. When we talk about faithfulness, it doesn't mean flawlessness. Faithful does not mean flawless. No, faithful means surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. Surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. Lord, whatever you want to do in my life, whatever you're doing to redeem the world, I want to be a part of that. I want to be surrendered to that. And so, Lord, my life is yours. Flaws and all. Redeem my flaws. Make me more like you and use me to redeem the world. And so we're looking at a, a great hero of the faith, but these heroes certainly had their flaws. Scripture gives a lot of attention to the story of Abraham and Sarah. And so you're, you're introduced to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and uh, tells uh, literally half the book of Genesis is telling the story uh, of Abraham, and, and, and in fact, the whole Chapter, the whole book of Genesis, from Genesis 12 on, it's telling the story of Abraham's family. It's a very prominent person uh, in our story. And Scripture is effusive in its praise of Abraham. That's certainly what the writer of Hebrews is doing in Hebrews 11. Abraham is exalted as this great father of faith, and Paul does the same thing. And let me remind you of how Abraham's story starts. It's, he, it's Genesis chapter 12, where God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, Go to a land that I'll show you. I'm not going to put your GPS coordinates in. I'm not going to show you where it's at. I'm not going to give you step-by-step -step directions. I'm just telling you to take the next step and this way towards this land I'll show you. And there I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your descendants great. And it's not going to be great just so people can think about how great Abraham is. No, I'm going to make your descendants great, as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore, so that the world might be blessed. Because what I'm doing to redeem the world is going to be through your descendants. And it is sometimes called, theologians sometimes call this the scandal of particularity. That God would choose one family. Of all the families of the world, God would choose one family 
and say, I'm going to bring the Messiah into the world, the one who's ultimately going to take the, the penalty for sin and be raised to new life, it's going to be through this family. I'm going to take that family, and through this family, everyone's going to be blessed. It's called the scandal of particularity. How, how odd. There's a little rhyme that helps you remember it. How odd of God to choose the Jews. That this is who God chose. He chose Abraham. So my God's going to do something significant through Abraham's life. And so Abraham began to, to trust in the Lord. Now, if you're going to bless someone with great descendants, this has to be a promise not only to Abraham, but to Abraham's spouse, a lady named Sarah. It's going to take two people to be blessed to make this happen. And the writer of Hebrews celebrates Sarah's faithfulness as well. Verse 11, And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And you know, if all you had to go on was Hebrews 11, you would think Sarah had it all together. You would think she trusted God completely, that God made, you know, she was way past that season of life where, you know, you get hot flashes and that kind of thing. Way past that. And, and, and God says, you know what? I'm going to bless you. I'm, I'm going to make you, your descendants great. You would think she just said, oh, okay, cool. That's totally normal that I would have a baby at this time in my life. You would think, just reading Hebrews 11, that she just kind of took it all in stride, said, oh, yeah, this is going to be fun. I'm looking forward to this. And if you jump to Genesis 21, you actually think that's kind of how it went. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, just as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant, and she bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. It, you know, based on Genesis 25, 21, you think everything's just fine. But the promise comes in Genesis 12. The fulfillment of the promise happens in Genesis 21. In between are nine chapters of Scripture. It would take you ten minutes to read it at, at the most. And a lot happens in those nine chapters. If, if you're Abraham and Sarah and you've received this promise to, to have a great family, wouldn't you love to just rush all the way to chapter 21? Wouldn't you love to just rush right through that, rush through that season of waiting? But what takes us 10 minutes to read took Abraham and Sarah almost 40-something years to live. Boy, they would love to rush that to Genesis 21. And it begs the question for us, how many of us like to wait? If you raise your hand, you're lying. None of us like to wait. We, we have things we want to do and places we want to go, and so we don't like waiting. I love amusement parks and, and, and uh I, I, I love roller coasters, and, and I love the thrill of that, and, and there's, there's very little that, that I won't ride when we go to these amusement parks. Uh, and I did something for the first time in my life this past week at Dollywood. Had the chance to go to Dollywood in, in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, and a, it's a, a sister park to Silver Dollar City. Uh, they're very similar. And they've got some great roller coasters, and their number one attraction right now is called Lightning Rod. And it's one of the biggest wooden roller coasters uh, in the country, uh, similar to a ride at Silver Dollar, Silver Dollar City called Outlaw Run. Uh, and we wanted to ride Lightning Rod. 
Now, I'd ridden coasters like this before, so that wasn't new to me. But what was new to me is my brother had some kind of special deal, and he had these things that, that Dollywood calls a time saver. If you're a Disney person, this is called a fast pass. Okay? And I had never in my 43 years of living and in all of those years going to amusement parks, I had never, ever used a fast pass. And we looked on the app and it said the wait time for a lightning rod was 120 minutes. And David pulls out these four little cards and he says, hey, that's nothing for us, man. We've got fast passes. I'm like, sweet. So my niece gets one and, and Paul gets one and I got one and my brother got one. We had four of them. And, and we could use these things eight times in the park. It was great. And we get to lightning rod and here's this line like wrapping around the, the ride and that's the regular line. And then there's this other little line that says the time saver line. And we just walked. I'd, I'd never done this before. Like everybody's waiting in line. And, and I just walked right into the time saver line. Now I want you to know something about that. Like there's this, this pastoral instinct that kicks in with me. Because some of what I'm called to do and some of what I, I get to do and privileged enough to do is, is I wait with families in difficult seasons of life. I mean, I, 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 I sometimes just being a pastor means you just wait with people. You just kind of wait in the messiness and the ugliness of life. And I'm, I'm passing all of these people who are waiting to get on lightning rod, and my, my heart's just breaking for them. I felt like I wanted to, like, pray with each one of them as we, as we pass them. Like, the Lord be with you. The Lord is gracious to you. Hold on. Don't give up, friend. You're going to make it one day. Just felt like I needed to bless them as we were as we were going through. But you know, I passed up all these people, and, and I eventually got over that, okay? You know what else I got over? Uh, uh, I had the same feeling when I, I got my known traveler number, and I'm able to bypass regular security and go through uh, the TSA pre-check line. Phenomenal experience. Phenomenal. I, 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 yeah, yeah, like everybody's taking their shoes off and, and getting ready to go on the plane, and I just kind of walk right through it. It's just, it makes me believe in, you know, the Calvinist doctrine of election. Like, I was chosen to be here, okay? Thank God. No, I'm just kidding. Actually, no, it makes me a better Wesleyan, because I took it on myself to go down and pay the money and get pre-checked, okay? So, um, anyway, if you, if you don't know what I'm talking about there, we'll talk later. But yeah, we, man, we bypassed all of those people, and we got on the ride, and it was just awesome. And how many of you would like to cash in your fast pass right now? Now, you're waiting on God to do something. Now, you're waiting on God to break in. You're waiting on God to reveal himself. You're waiting on God to do what he promised. And you're saying, God, here's my fast pass. I deserve this. I've been faithful. This is what I've done for you. I deserve this. You need to cash in right now. You need to deliver what you've, you've promised. But that's not how out for Sarah. And Sarah and Abraham got to a point where they were tired of waiting. God wasn't honoring their fast pass. And look what happens. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. 
So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. And when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Now, our 21st century manners and our 21st century culture read something like this and say, this is awful that, that, that Abraham would sleep with his wife's servant to conceive a child, and, and there's this kind of surrogate relationship going on there. What we need to kind of understand is in the ancient Near East at this time, this was not so scandalous. This was a common practice. And so the last thing you wanted to do if you were a wealthy person like Abraham is to die without an heir. And so Abraham and Hagar would come together. The heir that's produced would technically be Sarah's because Hagar was Sarah's property. And so this was not uncommon. But the problem with this arrangement is what did God say? God said, Abraham, Sarah, I'm going to bless you. It's through your descendants that I'm going to bless the world. And what Abraham and Sarah decided to do was they decided that God's promise, what God wanted to do, was a do-it-yourself project. They didn't want to wait on God. They said, no, this is a do-it-yourself moment. The way God wants it to happen is not working out. God's not coming through. God's timing isn't consistent with what I want to see happen in the world. And so it's time for us to take matters into our own hands and to do it ourselves. It's a do-it-yourself project. And as you think about this posture towards our relationship with God, friends, a do-it-yourself faith is no faith at all. It's not biblical faith. When, when you say to God, I'm going to manufacture this on my own, I'm going to make this happen, I'm tired of waiting on you, God, I'm going to do it myself. That's not biblical faith, and it, it is no faith at all. And sometimes in the midst of waiting or in the midst of, of, of not getting what we want or seeing something that we want and trying to obtain it, sometimes I've heard people talk about the ends will justify the means. The ends will justify the means. And this is worldly thinking. I want us to look at the life of Jesus. Like at what point did Jesus use ungodly or unjust means to accomplish his divine will? He always did it the way God called him to do it. And there's a great example of this. Every time Jesus would get a crowd together, every time the church was taken off, every time they were about to break that you know, magical 1,000-member barrier and they were going to become a megachurch, every time Jesus got a crowd together, he would say something challenging. He would say something that would that would make the people rethink their commitments. And he would talk about cross-bearing and and the crowd would disperse. And the disciples were like, why in the, what are you doing? Can you do that miracle again where you feed 5,000 people and you bring provisions out of nothing? Like, that draws a crowd, Jesus. If we could just go around feeding 5,000 people everywhere we go, we're going to get this thing together and, and we're going to establish this kingdom and it's going to be great. The disciples didn't understand Jesus' methods. But Jesus was living a life completely surrendered to the Father. And he would not use ungodly or unjust means to accomplish this divine purpose. He was patient and he was obedient. And, and nothing is more countercultural than what he did in surrendering himself to a cross, surrendering himself to death 
trusting that this was God's way to show the world just how much he loved them. So a do-it-yourself faith is, is no faith at all, but there's a tension here because I've also heard people just sit back and do nothing. And a do-nothing faith is, is really useless. You know, when we just sit back and say, well, I'm not going to put a whole lot of effort into this thing God's calling me to do. I'm not going to participate with what God is doing. I'm just going to kind of sit back and let things happen. And, you know, James says this. James 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? James 2, 14. You see, Christians, we live in this tension between faith and works. And when God has given you uh, 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 resources, when God has given you means to accomplish his goodwill and his purpose in the world, he expects you to, to use those means and to use that time and to use that talent, to use that treasure to do the things he's called you to do. And you don't need a, a bright light from heaven and you don't need writing on the wall. You just need to know that, that God calls me to be loving and kind and compassionate, and he's given me resources of time, talent, and treasure, and there's no reason, there's nothing to stop me from using these resources of, of time, talent, and treasure to accomplish God's goodwill and purpose. And so we live in this, this tension of between, between faith and deeds, and they, and they go together. Paul says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. And what the, this Christian life is always going to be this, this kind of realization that we offer the limited resources we have with the imperfect knowledge that we have and the finite amount of time that we have, we offer them to God. And we say, God, I'm trusting you in the waiting. I'm giving you what I have. I'm not manufacturing something on my own, but I'm giving you what I have with the knowledge that I have, and I'm trusting that your way is going to be the best way. And friends, I think the, the lesson from Abraham and Sarah today is to keep our eyes on Jesus. Keep our eyes on the one who has made the promise. This is what Hebrews 12.1 is saying. We're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. Let's run the race with perseverance. How do we do that? Verse 2, so we fix our eyes on Jesus. As you, as you live in this tension between faith and deeds, you have to ask yourself, is this what Jesus would do with this resource? Is this what Jesus would do with this time? Is this what Jesus would do with this knowledge that I have? We fix our eyes on, on Jesus. And so as we run the race, friends, we start and we finish the race in the strength of Christ alone. It is only in Christ's strength that we can start and finish the race. So for those of us living in this tension, I have a story from our history that I, I, I think helps us out a little bit. Especially as we think about great heroes of our faith, heroes in chapter 11, and then heroes in the 100-year history of our church. There's a lady that plays a very prominent role in our story, and her name is Lavina Lambert. And uh, her story really began when her husband came to be the pastor of this church in the 70s. What we know her for, though, in our church is uh, she was a champion 
for, for missions. She loved this idea that God was taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to all people and in all places through the church of the Nazarene. And so she was a champion for missionaries and for alabaster offerings and for compassionate ministries around the world. And, and, and she served as our, our district missions president. And so she would schedule missionaries that would, that would travel around the North Arkansas district. And she would put together NMI conventions every year to help raise support and raise awareness for the work of missions across our district. And she resourced local churches to help them be champions of global mission in, in their communities. Uh, she also, along with a lady named Mary Coleman, she started our, what we know today as our Compassionate Ministry Center. It started as a food pantry. Uh, I almost said over here on the side of our sanctuary, but, but this would have been in our old sanctuary. There was a little, what was an overgrown closet, really, and they stocked it with food, and they fed people. And that started because Lavina and Mary had a heart for people that were economically disadvantaged. And so there's all of these these great things that our sister Lavina did in her life, these things that champion missions. But one of the things you don't know about Lavina, or, or maybe is not always told, is Lavina knew what it was like to wait. Lavina knew what it was like to have her heart broken. A, a, a very difficult chapter in her story is, is, is when her marriage ended up not working out because her husband decided that, that he loved someone else. That kind of thing happens even to people who love the Lord. Did you know that? Even people who love the Lord experience the sin of broken marriages and the sin that leads up to what ultimately dissolves marriages. We don't always tell that story because, you know, it makes us feel uncomfortable and that's not something you talk about and maybe that's a story that you kind of brush under the rug, but have you read the book of Genesis? Have you heard the story of Abraham and Hagar? Do you see like chapter upon chapter of people with, with really painful stories and yet God worked through them? And so our sister Lavina knew the pain of a broken marriage. She knew the pain of betrayal by her spouse. And she also knew what it was like when a doctor sat down with her in an examination room and said, Lavina, I've got some really bad news for you. There's some, there's some things here I'm seeing on these scans that doesn't look good. She knew what it was like for a doctor to tell her, you have cancer. She knew what it was like for a, a community of people to pray and to intercede and, and to lift her up. Ultimately, because, as my friend Kate Ballard says, there is no cure for being human. Ultimately, her body surrendered to this disease, and, and she's with Jesus today. So she knew what it was like to, to, to walk through that season of life and to go through these treatments. We're flawed people. We have stories we're not always proud of. We have, we have stories that bring pain in our, our life. But those of us that knew her well, those of us that knew her well knew that no matter what life threw at her, 
no matter what season of pain or discouragement she went through, she always kept her eyes on Jesus. She always kept her eyes on Jesus. And your story is flawed. Your story is broken. We all have sin in our story, either sin that we've done or sin that has been done to us. Sin is a, a relational thing. It breaks healthy relationships. And so we've all been affected by that. We all live in this flawed world. But look to the cloud of witnesses. Look to Abraham and Sarah and Lavina and all of those that have gone before us. They're with Jesus today, and they're telling us, they're saying, keep running the race. Keep putting one foot in front of the other. Keep being faithful. Keep your eyes on Jesus, because the prize at the end is worth it. It's worth it. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And so, can I just share that as a, an encouragement for you today? Maybe you felt like giving up. Maybe you felt like uh, your story's not worth a whole lot. Maybe there's, you, you feel like there's too many flaws in your story. I want you to know God can use you. Like right where you're at. With the limited resources that you have and the limited knowledge that you have and the limited amount of time that you have, God can use you. And he can do something special in your life and through your life. But you have got to keep your eyes on Jesus. So friends, let's keep our eyes on Jesus today. Let this be a reminder today that when we keep our eyes on Jesus, He is always faithful. Even when we're flawed, He's always faithful. And He will get us to the finish line as we trust in Him.